Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. Tonight, we are revisiting the topic of relapse. We're going to talk about the subtle changes in thinking that can cause a slide into relapse, as well as how to come back into the recovery fold after a relapse. Let's welcome my co-hosts, Amanda and Jean. Hi, ladies. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi, everybody. Nice to hear from you. How are you? Very good. Wonderful. Good. Well, we're joined tonight by two wonderful guests who will be sharing their recovery stories, our friend Kate. Hi there, Kate. Hi, Catherine. And the Bubble Hour's own founding co-host, Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Hey, Catherine. Hey, everybody. It's great to be back. Yeah, great Hi, to ladies. have both of you here. Thank you. So in preparing for tonight's show, I re-listened to a Bubble Hour episode called Relapse Prevention, Tools, Tips, and Tales, which originally aired in March of 2013. And the discussion included information about the stages of relapse. And this was and still is stunning to me that there are 11 stages of relapse, with the very last one being actually picking up a drink. And I thought this would be useful to keep in mind. So folks who haven't listened to that episode, it might be worth going back and checking it out. But at a high level, it's important to know that relapse can start with mental changes, such as difficulty coping with stress and exhaustion, extreme thinking, such as no one understands, or my problems are too big to be solved, as well as our old friend's dishonesty, defensiveness, and isolation. The mental changes are followed by attitude changes, such as self-reliance and pride, which sound like, I can recover without anyone's help, and rationalizing, which can say, I deserve a break, as well as complacency about recovery, such as this, I have some sober time under my belt, I must be okay now. All of this leads to behavior changes, such as not actively engaging in our recovery, such as not talking to other sober people at recovery meetings or to a sponsor, Uh, neglecting personal care, including proper food and rest, procrastinating in our daily affairs, and then all of this ends in actually picking up a drink. So it can be a slide into a drink that may take weeks, months, or even years. And the changes in thinking uh, can erode our attitude and then our behavior so that a relapse can kind of take us by surprise. And so I just thought that would be helpful to kind of set up the conversation, but I really want to jump right into the stories uh, now with from Kate and Ellie, um, since that's how we learn, is through other people's experiences. So, Kate, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your recovery journey. Okay, thanks, Catherine. Um, I wish I had listened to that uh, episode of the 
a bubble hour regarding relapse a few months ago because I wasn't aware of all those sneezes, or at least I didn't remember all of them, and I know it would have been helpful in um, my experience. But um, I'm 37 years old. I'm a working mom. Um, I, in July of 2012, decided that I had to stop drinking. I didn't know know how to go about doing so, so I kept on drinking again for probably about uh, three or four months before I ended up finding a blog that um, directed me ultimately to an online recovery group, which ended up being very helpful uh, for me. Um, My first honest attempt to stop drinking, my first day one, as many call it, was on December 2nd of 2012. And at that time, I ended up getting 13 sober days. And I was thinking about this, how do you define relapse? Um, I don't necessarily think that I would call that a relapse. I think it was just not being committed to the idea of being sober. At that point, I I didn't want to be. I didn't want to have to stop drinking. I didn't want to have a problem. I was angry, really angry that I had a problem. And... Um, I didn't want to talk to anyone about it in real life. I relied on the group online for support, and I think I said a lot of the right things and maybe pretended like I had my act together and was doing some of the things that people recommended, but I was very defiant about the whole process at that time. Um, and then I also did a lot of comparing myself to others um, in real life, you know, friends at work or uh, family members, oh, you know, he had three Manhattans and I only had two Cosmos and a beer, so, you know, I'm not that bad. And so a lot of that went on and for a while until it just got to the point where my husband started noticing, you know, and calling me out on my drinking, and uh, it just got hard to deny, and it, would, it was just getting worse and worse. And, I mean, I would go to work every day, and I was still successful, but I felt like crap most of the time. And... You know, I, I didn't want to have anything, have anything to do with my kids. I was exhausted. And the first thing I wanted to do when I came home was not necessarily play with them and catch up with them after their day. It was grab that glass of wine. I would have my coat on. I would pull the glass out of, the, you know, the cupboard and pour myself, you know, my first glass of Pinot Grigio. So it, it just was getting messier and messier, and my husband was noticing more and more. So then the hiding of the bottle started, um, and... Eventually, I had to, you know, it just came to a head, and he said, you know, this has got to stop. So that was the start of accountability. That was the first time that I actually had said, okay, you're right. I cannot do this anymore. I have to stop. It's it's not good for me. Like, I knew in my head it wasn't good, but I just didn't know how I was going to not drink ever again. So um, having that accountability at home was huge for me. Um, and I ended up talking to my family as well because they're also a big group of drinkers, and I'm not saying they're alcoholics because I don't know. Only they can tell for themselves whether or not they are. But um, it was just difficult being around them because, I mean, the first thing that they would ask if you didn't have a drink or they would assume is that you're pregnant. So I had to let everyone know right up front that, no, I'm not pregnant. I'm just, you know, I just can't do this anymore. It's not healthy. I drink too much. So that was a huge step in the right direction for me is establishing that accountability um, but, the, and that's ultimately what led to, um, you know, a stringing months sober together, together and being able to see, you know, life really is so much easier and better. You know, you, getting through those first few weeks and few days is torture, but, you know, once you get 
some time under your belt. It's 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 freedom. You know, it's it's so hard to describe to someone in their early days, but so I got a taste of that. Um, and let's see. There's so many reasons why I can. I was trying to think of well, why did I relapse again? Um, I guess just a complacency. A lot of what you had on that list. I mean, I recognize all those. Um, just being exhausted, you know, and using the excuse, "Well, I work all day, and then I have to come home and take care of my two kids." You know, I don't have time to go to meetings. I don't have time to, you know, for myself. You know, I deserve this. Um, then also being angry, you know, I got back to the angry, well, you know, it's not fair that my friends or coworkers can go out after this meeting and have drinks and I have to go home or I have to go and have shelter, you know, and just anger because I didn't have, you know, an established recovery program. I had an online group, but um, anytime I was struggling and I would, you know, post and someone would say, go to a meeting, I'd roll my eyes and, you know, whatever. I, like, I don't, I'm not that bad. You know, I was still comparing myself to people. And um, and the, the funny thing is, you know, as with each relapse after having months sober, there was like this list of things in my head that I had, you know, well, I'm not that bad because I never did this and I never did that. Well, as any time I relapse, that list would get smaller and smaller, and I'd be able to cross a few of those things that I never had done off that list. You know, it, it just—it was getting worse, and because um, of the fact that I had established accountability with my husband and wasn't allowed to drink at home anymore, you know, if I did decide that okay, I am going to drink, and that's what I find that I do. Like I get it in my head, and I'm like, I'm not posting, I'm not calling, I'm not going to a meeting because I'm going to drink. Um, I would sneak it, and then that is just trouble, huge trouble. And I keep—that's uh, one of the biggest things I tell you know friends who are struggling. You know, you you cannot do that because that's when it gets really dangerous because you're drinking more than you usually would faster because you don't want to get caught, and it's just trouble. You know, huge trouble. So um, that has happened a few times where I did get caught, and ultimately um, it's come to uh, with my husband. You know, like. You need to stop. Like this has got to stop, or we're going to have consequences as far as our marriage goes, um, as far as the kids goes. So I mean, I have so much to lose. And uh, sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but um, I, I think the biggest thing for me right now is having seen how good it can be sober, seeing how bad it is when you go back to drinking. Like there's no pleasure in it for me at all anymore. It's not like, oh, let's go have a beer after work, and it's, you know, relaxing like it was, like, years ago. It's just trouble. There's nothing good about it, and I know that logically. Um, So, uh, and also what I've learned over the past, um, I guess, two and a half years total, is that, like, I I can't do it alone, and that's okay. Anyone who thinks they can, I, I'd feel bad for them because there's so many resource, resources out there between online groups and real-life groups, and that's something I, you know, I said that I didn't want to go to meetings. Well, I gave it a shot, and I've tried a lot, and I found you know, one that I really like, and it's once a week, and it's probably not as often as I should go, but at least I know I have that group there, and it's a group of people that I can relate to. So... My suggestion to some who, you know, just haven't found one that works, just keep trying because 
when you find that right group, I mean, you don't have to go every time, but you, just knowing that it's there, it's huge. And then also another tool for me, um, I'm, you know, I did mention that I have the kids and work and I tend to be type A, stressed out a lot of the times. So I have been going to yoga quite often, and that's helped me a lot too. And I know it's not a traditional recovery tool, but it just helps me get out of my head. And um, I, I often use the excuse that I'm too busy, you know, I, I can't fit in things for myself. Well, now I do. I make a schedule. I tell my husband, okay, Tuesday night I'm going here, Thursday night I'm going here, Saturday at 9. So he knows ahead of time and he respects that because he wants me to be better. He doesn't want to, you know, it's not fun for him either when I'm drinking. He knows it's not fun for me. So he really supports me. And um, I think lately one thing that I've been doing is that recognizing, I, I, I always tried to be, you know, as normal as possible and so I couldn't drink, but I didn't want anyone around me to not drink because of me. Like, you need to keep on doing what you normally do, and um, and then I, I'm okay with it. You can do that. And, like, you know, having beer, wine in the house, and just this weekend I realized, you know what, why? Why torture myself when it, it's okay to just say, hey, I, I can't handle it. it. It's bothering me. This is bothering me. Can you please, you know, we need to address it. And it's okay to just, you know, accept that and ask for help. That's huge for me is asking for help in many different ways. Um, it's not easy to do, but I think it's a key. I mean, you can't expect to do this all on your own, and you don't have to. There's so many resources out there. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of I'm rambling. But <laughs> you guys have No, you're not at all. Not at all. No. No, not at all. No, it's. It's really this is um, this is helping me so much, Kate. And I, I'm just wondering what was you know. In, looking back, you said okay, you, you got 13 days in December of 2012, but you feel like you weren't really committed then. And then you sort of had the various months of um, trying. And so now, how would you describe the difference of you know, how did you get to that place of feeling committed or surrendered or whatever the word is that would describe it? Uh, um, I think it's been multiple things. Uh, one of the things has been meeting people in real life who are in recovery, who are sober and have years of, you know, sobriety under their belt and they're happy, they're successful. They're people that I would sort of define as normal. I don't know. <laughs> it's not the guy under the bridge with the paper bag, you know. There's such a stigma in regards to alcoholism. It's like you don't want to be an alcoholic. But, I mean, there's so many of us out there. It's kind of crazy. And so that's been a huge help, you know, to see that, you know, I'm not this strange, like, weird person that has this problem. Um, there's a lot of us that have this problem. So just being able to relate to people. Um, what else? Um just recognizing and seeing that, yeah, there are those moments that, you know, I, I had one this morning when the kids are screaming, you know, when it's so nice to check out, but it just doesn't work. And it's never going to work for me, and I just need to be okay with that. And that moment, you know, of screaming or whatever the reason I want to completely numb myself out, 
just get over it. You can't do it anymore. You got to find another way to do it. And you know what? It's going to pass. And before I'd be, you know, say a year or a year and a half ago, in moments like that, I'd, I'd get that. Well, you deserve this. You know that. You know, in sense of entitlement, and uh, and, that, and that would lead me to maybe not necessarily that day, but eventually, soon thereafter, it was an excuse. And uh, I, I just recognizing that about my personality and all ego that's huge you know I, <laughs> which is, sort of goes along with this I, I remember thinking um when you guys had the bubble out around ego i'm like i don't have an ego and i listened to it i'm like oh jeez yes i do i'm like yeah, i was thinking my head throughout the entire thing just recognizing things like that and being able to you know call myself out on it is huge it's such a it's helpful it's awesome it's comical too at times, but um, and then also, you know, I I just have so much to lose, and it's really is it worth it over a glass of Pinot Grigio? It's really not. So just being able to step back and say, hey, you know, you have a lot at stake here, and maybe my husband might not like it, but you know, I just saying, hey. I need to go to a meeting or I need to go to yoga. I got to get out of this house, just drive around for five minutes. And, you know, being able to ask for that rather than using that five minutes as an excuse to, you know, go sneak a bottle of wine or, I don't know, whatever. It would have led to that eventually. And then another huge one for me has been um, I sort of, I, I'm really good at, you know, getting through those big events, like the work conference or the, the work dinner or those triggery events. I'm I'm really good at getting through those. But I also, um, like, tend to let my guard down a few days afterwards, and uh, uh, that I always ended up drinking for some reason, because, well, obviously I let my guard down, I just said why. But um, I... I kind of recognize the pattern, and at first they used it as an excuse to drink, like, oh, this is just what I do. They're going to be expecting me to, you know, relapse again after this event. So I used it as an excuse a couple times, and now it's just being prepared and calling myself out ahead of time, like letting my recovery community know, hey, this is going to be a tough one for me. Like, look out. You know, not that they need to be looking out for me, babysitting me, but just calling myself out knowing that someone is going to be paying attention, asking for help. So, um. Yeah, I feel like every episode we end up landing on the same theme of finding a recovery community to, you know, you've said that a number of times just now, Kate, of, you know, we can't do it alone and, and we shouldn't be expected to. Um to do that so you know it's it's such a great reminder and I'm also you know when you were talking about consequences it's something that just popped into my head was how I don't know about anybody else but I just didn't care about consequences like them I did until the minute the first drink hit my lips and then it just didn't matter I and 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 if people say oh how do I know if I'm an alcoholic like in my view that's that might be one of the things to look for is, and that's something that people who aren't alcoholics don't understand. Um, So it's like, I can't keep that perspective of consequences unless I'm sober. Because if I, the minute I start drinking, I don't care. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if that resonates with anybody, but absolutely, absolutely. yeah, definitely. <clears throat> well, you know, this is there's there's so much here to talk about, and I, I think that maybe what we should do is we'll bring Ellie in, and then we can all just start unpacking all of the the issues here. And, and my guess is that Ellie, you'll you'll probably have thematically a, a number of things. Um, to echo what Kate is saying. So longtime listeners of the program um, will recognize our next guest, Ellie. She is a founder of the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and we're really pleased to welcome Ellie back to the show. So tell us about yourself and your story. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, it's really, it's great to, it's great to be back talking with you guys. And um, yeah, absolutely. A lot of, almost everything of what Kate said resonated with me. And I'll try to tell the just a really brief synopsis of um, kind of my my addiction history. And I got sober for the first time in 2007 after drinking for 20 years, daily drinking, alcoholically drinking for probably the last two of those years. And um, when I got sober, a lot of it was being over a barrel. You know, I, I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I had a problem but I just did not want to stop. I felt like that alcohol was the thing that held me together and just refused to acknowledge that it was the thing that was tearing me apart from the inside out. And um, my husband had had it, and my health was failing, and lots of lots of consequences were happening because of my drinking. I think it's really astute what Kate mentioned, and, or Catherine, that you mentioned, that you know, drinking, despite the fact that consequences come, is, is certainly a hallmark, or it was for me, definitely. Um, and pretty much being forced into getting help. It started with meetings, and that didn't work, and I went through an inpatient treatment, and that didn't work, and eventually ended up in a 30-day program, which was which was phenomenal, and uh, an inpatient program. And when I got out of that, I didn't want to be sober, but I didn't want to drink anymore, so I just went ahead and did what they told me to do, just because it was the only thing I hadn't tried, which was to listen and to get help. And um, as a result of that, I became very active in recovery. I went to a lot of recovery meetings. It was really the community that I found there was the spark behind beginning things like uh, Crying Out Now and eventually the Bubble Hour um, because I really felt as though that feeling of Me Too, that community that, that or that relief that I felt when I would hear other people tell my story and, and express the feelings that I had that when I was drinking, I really felt like the only one who felt those things or who did these crazy things like hide bottles or lie for no reason or, um, you know, I, I just, I, that, that power of community was so um, uplifting and freeing for me that um, I got very, very immersed in recovery, um, both in my, in real life communities with meetings and recovery people and sponsors and things like that, and also in the online community and in recovery advocacy. And um, so I stayed sober through meetings and um, talking with alcoholics in recovery on a daily basis, and a lot of really amazing gifts came into my life as a result of it. Um, I did get very busy, but it was it felt manageable and a, and a really great balance of putting my recovery first and knowing full well that if I stayed sober, then everything else in my life would stay intact and healthy and balanced. Um, and in 2011, I had a really tough year. My dad died really suddenly in June, and then three months later, I was diagnosed with cancer, which led to me being very sick for about eight or nine months with intensive uh, chemotherapy and radiation treatments. Um, 
and I've subsequently come to learn that a lot of the pain medication and things that they had to give me as a result of my cancer treatment and uh, what, what sort of flared up my, my addiction center in the bubble hour. We've talked a lot about the um, sort of brain the brain disease and the physiology of addiction, and I was feeling extremely relieved that I never became dependent on those pain medications. But all of this, again, in hindsight, I realized that it, it sort of poked the beast. It woke the monster up. And when I started to feel better coming out of my cancer treatments, um, I had been offline from my recovery community for about eight or nine months, and I went into full-blown workaholism mode. I was I have a jewelry company, and I started another jewelry company online. I um, it really vamped up the work I was doing in recovery advocacy. I started another direct sales business. I was busy, busy, busy for 14 hours a day, and um, I did a lot of what Kate talked about with I don't have time for my own personal recovery. I, I, I felt, I said to myself, and I honestly felt that it was that just by working with other alcoholics in recovery and talking to other alcoholics in recovery and being so immersed in the sort of in, in the recovery community, broadly speaking, that that was the same thing as working a personal program of recovery. And um, what I was doing was running. I was running from the pain of my dad's loss. I was running from the fear and the anxiety I experienced as a part of, of having cancer. Um, I had a lot of hormonal issues and things going on as a result of that treatment. I did not want to feel. I did not want to think. And I certainly didn't want to stop moving because as soon as I stopped moving, I would get that sort of existential angst and that itch. I was what I consider now pretty profoundly depressed, but I, I always thought that depression manifested itself in a, an, uh, almost exclusively in a kind of lethargy or you can't get out of bed or your world goes gray. And, you know, to the outside world, it looked like I was lighting the world on fire. And um, the people that I did still stay in touch with that were part of my recovery community would say things to me like, Ellie, you do know that you're acting impulsively and obsessively and compulsively the only thing you haven't done is picked up a drink. And I completely dismissed what they had to say because um, the rest of the world, the quote-unquote normal people um, who aren't aware of the way that people look when they're sliding into a relapse were saying, look at you go and you know all these wonderful things that you're doing and all these people you're helping and you just really seem to be at the top of your game. And so I sought the validation that I would get from outside sources to make me feel like if if all these people think I'm okay, then I must be okay, right? You know, I, I really, um, really didn't want to take a hard look at myself. And I even did, I went through the 12 steps of recovery twice during this period of time after my treatment. And I did, a, I, what I, what I, how I describe it now is I really intellectualized my recovery I could talk a really good game to myself. I believed what it was that I told myself. And so it was very easy for me to convince other people that I was, you know, working on myself. And and there's a big difference between doing the steps and living the steps. Um, I was not really adhering at all to the principles of things like humility and um, working hard and changing myself and working on the things that, like the depression and the anxiety and the things that were um, creeping up on me little by little. And it really, it took me a year and a half. I, I look at it now and I realize that from the end of my cancer treatments to when I actually picked up a drink was about a year and a half. And um, by the time I actually relapsed, I was in so much emotional pain 
I was just, you know, that analogy they have of the duck swimming on the water where it looks so calm on the surface, but it's paddling madly beneath the water. I mean, that was me. I wasn't asking for help. I wasn't interested in anybody's help. I um, basically wanted to deal with everybody else's. It, my dog is barking in the background. I apologize. Um, <laughs> deal with everybody else's issues rather than my own. And so I just I overextended myself for my kids and my husband and my my family of origin. And I was, um, you know, just, just in such a weak place that I, I was an opportunistic thing. I had. Uh, vanilla extract, which has alcohol in it, in my pantry one day, and I, without even thinking, I remembered hearing that that had been that had alcohol in it, and I and I drank it. And sometimes I'm reluctant to tell that story because I feel like it gives people who may not know that vanilla extract has alcohol in it an idea. But I I don't feel that way anymore because it's the kind of thing where to be protective of my recovery, I I can't really be around anything that could lead to what I call an opportunistic relapse. And, you know, I wasn't thinking, wow, maybe I can drink in safety now. Maybe I can, you know, standing in your pantry at 2 o'clock in the afternoon drinking vanilla extract is, you know, social drinking. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't in any kind of denial about how badly off I was. I know now it was a giant cry for help. And I think the um, most important thing, lesson that came out of that was the first relapse. I struggled again a month later was that the obsession to drink came immediately back. It did not matter that I had five years of sobriety or almost six years of sobriety under my belt. It it, it was instantaneous because I was so far away from my recovery community, so far away from working on myself, so overextended um, and so desperate that I wanted to hide from myself. And that's the only way that my 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 disease myself that knew how to do that and it's like there was that 15 seconds of relief of like oh right now I'm okay in my own skin and then the wheels came completely off the bus it was absolutely instantaneous where you know within hours I'm driving to the liquor store to buy vodka and um, knowing full well that I was that I'd relapsed that I was in a heap of trouble that I was physically addicted immediately again and I didn't care because I just couldn't stand myself for one second longer. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate in the sense that even though I had stepped away from my recovery community, there's still a lot of people in my life that are that are very close to me that could see what was going on and who stepped in pretty quickly and insisted that I go get help. And so I went back to the 30-day treatment program and... Um, Within two weeks of being there, I was fighting to get out. I was saying that I, you know, I had a speech to give or I had someplace else to be. I was thinking of everybody, all the promises that I had made to other people and to my kids, and how is my husband going to deal? And how is, you know, I was supposed to give a, a keynote speech at a fundraising event or something. And I, I am so blessed to have someone in my life who came to me at the the, the rehab and sat down and said, "No, I don't hear surrender from you. I hear you." Scrambling to get your life back. I hear a lot of ego. I hear your addiction speaking to me. You need to stop and focus on yourself. And I got so angry because I was terrified. The last person in the world that I wanted to be stuck with was me. And um, so I took the last two weeks of that 30-day program and I listened quietly and I was a good student and I took a lot of notes and I you know, reluctantly agreed that I needed to make a lot of changes and simplify my life. 
um, and I got out of that program, and I went home, and I made a lot of promises, and I kept them for maybe a couple of weeks, well, I don't know, saying that I'd stop being so busy, and I would focus on myself, and I wouldn't, um, you know, overextend or put anything, basically the message of anything you put in front of your recovery you're going to lose, I ignored that. I thought, my kids need me. I've just been away from them for 30 days, and my businesses are struggling, and I don't... I had all these people offering to help me. So many people stepped in when I was away to make sure that I could focus on myself, but all I wanted was my life back. And I didn't want to make those changes, and I didn't want to do the hard work. And I did go back to recovery meetings, and I was, you know, a good doobie, and I sat there for three or four times a week, and I tried, in my mind, I tried to get back involved, but... I I just did I I was not surrendered. I was not willing. I I guess another way of putting it is I still wasn't a good enough reason for me to stay sober. And recovery is nothing if it's not an inside job. And when I'm uncomfortable in my own skin and when the only the person that you want to hide from the most is yourself, that's a really dangerous place to be in. And I needed a lot more help than I was asking for. And even the help that I was being offered, I was very resistant to taking it. Defiance is a big part of my story. And so I made it 90 days um, before I put myself in a situation that was dangerous, taking care of somebody else in a in a very, very triggery environment where there was alcohol around. And um, I, the way I've described it before is, I was literally drinking. There was wine in a refrigerator that was open, and I opened the refrigerator to pull out some leftovers to heat up for dinner, and I pulled out a bottle of wine instead, and I just drank it. There was not a moment's thought. There was not a moment like maybe I should call somebody or maybe I should ask for help. It was absolutely like I was was almost an out-of-body experience, like watching my hand reach for the bottle and thinking, well, here we go. You know, it was a classic case of of the efforts. And um, yet again, I and then well, the, I won't get into a lot of detail just because I know we don't have all the time in the world. But w- it's an important part of what happened is that many, many of the things that had happened to me were emotional bottoms or physical health issues. I had I had never had a DUI. I had never had some of the outside legal trouble. I had never, and even though I told myself that I didn't compare, that I identified. Um, now that I've been through some of those things, I realized that I was. I, I was looking at other people's stories and thinking, wow, that must have been really hard. Thank God that never happened to me. Because that second time I relapsed that night, I hit about four yets in three hours. My relapse lasted about an hour. I got in the car and, and tried to drive home with my kids. And um, we had instructed my kids as to what to look for. We have a whole safety plan in place because of my first relapse. And my daughter recognized that I was driving too slow and asked me to pull over. And about five minutes after she asked me to pull over, I started to go into a gray out. And um, the police, she called the police, and the police came, and I was arrested, and I had a DUI with child endangerment and a heap of legal trouble and a very, very angry husband and kids that I had scared half to death. And, you know, it's a miracle. It's it's a, just a divine intervention that things didn't go much, much, much worse. Um, and, again, that same posse of sober women that have been by my side the entire time came in and just looked me straight in the eye and said, you know, no more messing around. You're going for long-term treatment. You're going for at least 60 days, 90 days if we can get it. And everything else in your life is gone. It's just gone. And it's all about you. It really, for me, it was a life and death situation. Um, And 
I mean, thank God. Thank God I had nowhere else to go. Thank God I had. No, I mean, I, I could, I could have fought it, and I could have tried to make excuses, but there was nothing left to go back to. And so, by going into longer-term treatment, I had to sit with myself, and I had to look at some really, really hard things. And the wreckage that I experienced as a result of that last relapse is is staggering. Um, you know, here I was, somebody who was out front in the public eye all the time talking about recovery advocacy, doing a podcast about the 11 stages of relapse. And, you know, it really showed me in that, that, in that those 90 days of just focusing on my recovery and on myself how this is not something – recovery is completely an inside job, but not only is it an inside job, it's not something that can be done with your head, with my head. It's my thinking – and my brain that gets me in trouble, I had to move it from my head to my heart. And I had to fall in love with myself again. I had to really sit hard and, and, and do lots of thinking and get lots of help with, you know, what is it that you're hiding from? What are these, what's this, you know, these old wounds and old pain and look at depression and look at anxiety and look at PTSD and lots of underlying causes that, you know, I... I I, I would rather get sober a hundred times over than sit down and look at a lot of the of the old wounds in my life. Um, but mm-hmm. I know now that until I did that, I could have built the strongest recovery in the world. You know, I, I've described it before, like a big shiny castle of recovery and laying these bricks and adorning it with flags and making it look all fancy and perfect. But if I'm building a recovery castle on a swamp, it's going to sink. And I look at recovery now as kind of like a, like a three-tiered stool, and there's three components of it for me, which are a program of recovery, which involves, for me, community and meetings. There's also the mental health conditions like depression and anxiety and PTSD and finding a safe medication and finding a a really good therapist who understands addiction. That's another component of it. Um, And the spirituality, you know, finding a a higher power or a sense of, of something larger than myself and in the past, I've always had sort of two of those three tiers, like two of those two pegs on my stool, but not all three. And so even the recovery I had was very precarious. I was always tottering on two, 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 two legs instead of three. And I need to devote as much attention to all three of those things now for me to be able to maintain um, a very focused and serious recovery. Um, and the other interesting thing that I learned is that you know, I used to sit, I can remember when I got sober the first time, I thought, you know, I'm really glad I'm married or I'm really glad I have kids and I'm really glad I have these outside factors that I'm afraid of losing because I think without them I'm not sure I could stay sober right now, especially in the first, you know, six months to a year of the first time I got sober. And, you know, I'm very, very blessed to be back with my kids and living at home and, you know, I've really simplified my life. I'm, I'm you know, peripherally involved in a lot of recovery advocacy, but I'm not dead center anymore. I'm very slowly integrating back into my businesses and doing it in a very balanced and kind of soulful way. Um, but recovery is a full-time job for me now. I'm separated from my husband, and that's the kind of thing that would have sent me right into a relapse before. And I was just thinking this morning as I was driving along, I thought, wow, I mean, I hit all these yes, all these things that I could never imagine staying sober through, that I could never imagine, you know, finding a a, a purpose, a way to keep going, that to lose those outside things would just be unbearable. 
And the last six months that I've had of, of recovery have been better than all the six years that I had before because I'm doing it for me. I mean, I'm really doing it for me. Um, I'm finding a, self, a sense of self-worth. I'm finding a sense of self-confidence, um, which is completely the opposite of ego. Um, I would have sworn up and down I didn't have an ego. I would have said, no, no, look at me. I give and I give and I do all these important hard works and I care and I'm philanthropic and I founded a nonprofit. I mean, I would shove my resume right under your nose if you told me I had an ego, <laughs> which is an incredibly <laughs> egotistical thing to do. Um, but to find that sort of sacred space within myself and, um, you know, finding out who I am when I'm not in any kind of spotlight and finding out who I am when nobody's watching and when nobody's home and um, wanting it for me, wanting peace of mind and filling that hole that I have in my soul that I that I think I'll always carry around to a certain degree um, with love and compassion and, and for me, God, you know, for spirituality. It's not a religious thing. It's a spiritual thing. Um, and being quiet and still a lot. You know, I, I am not somebody who does very well with, with sitting still or not having a jam-packed day. And I can look back on the what's transpired over the last nine months or so and realize, you know, I've, I've lost my license. I've lost my license for a year. Um, I can't get in my car and run around like a nut even if I want to. And a good friend of mine said, you know, sometimes God taps you on the shoulder and sometimes he elbows you in the teeth. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how I see what's happened to me. You know, I... I this is I'm not saying that I'm grateful for all the hardships I've been through, but I am grateful for the ability to be aware of the lessons that they're meant to teach me. I'm grateful to be somebody who remains teachable, and I now surround myself with people who I trust to calm me on me, who know my thinking better than I do, who when they give me a piece of advice or a gentle suggestion, quote unquote, or or try to, or people who come into my life who are in recovery who just want to love me, I let them do it. And if I start to get that icky, defiant, who do you think you are, and I don't need that feeling, I know they're right. You know, if I start to get squirmy and think, well, I can, I, they can't tell me what to do, I'm too busy, or that person needs me, or I have to be here, or my kids, or my, you know, I, if I'm negotiating, if I'm negotiating with myself, if I'm negotiating with people around me, I know now that that's the first sign of a relapse, that I am not prioritizing the one and only thing that will enable me to have all the gifts that I have in my life, which is recovery. Um, because it scared me. It scared me that I could know I was an alcoholic. It scared me that I could know that my life would fall apart if I drank. And not only did I do it once, I did it twice. I relapsed twice. And, you know, that's really kind of a slow form of suicide or perhaps a quick one, depending on how unlucky you are. And to take it that seriously and realize that it doesn't matter how big my brain is or how much I know or how much I've intellectualized about recovery or how many people I help um, or how clean my house is or how big my paycheck is, or none of those things matter at all because anytime that there's outside reach for inner peace, it's going to let me down. And... Um, it's a very difficult thing to describe, and I'm a writer, and I can't even write about it now. I don't even really know how to put it into words because I, I pretty much, when they say you have to, all you have to change is everything when you get sober. I hate that expression because I think it sounds flip about something that's very serious, but it's true. 
I had to take all the things that I thought meant the most to me, my businesses and and even my children, being able to be with my children, and all the things that I was desperately clinging to to keep close to me, those were the things I thought were making me okay. And I had to be willing to set them all aside and put myself first and be okay with me before I could be okay for anybody else. And my recovery hinges on that. So I echo everything Kate said. I mean, I I echo all the things about being in a community, especially when I don't want to be, you know, especially when I'm doing the I'm fine (laughs) and I'm just going to sit and dive into Netflix. Thank you very much. I don't need anybody's help. You know, that's – I. If there's a choice between a hard, uncomfortable thing and an easy thing, I always pick the hard thing now, because you know I I know I know I can't trust my own thinking, and I know that when I'm in a recovery community, those are people that will love me unconditionally. They're not looking for anything from me. They're not my husband. They're not my kids. They're not my mom. They're just people who who have been through the same kind of dark things that I've been through, and who are there to offer me their unconditional love and support. And it's astonishing how hard it is to accept that. But now that I'm able to do it, my life is uh, very, very chaotic on the outside and extremely peaceful on the inside. And the past six years that I had sober, my life was extremely calm on the outside and very chaotic on the inside. And so it wasn't until I let all those people in um, and found a really grounded sense of spirituality and, and higher power, that's when I found the inside peace. And I'll take that any day over the alternative. <laughs> so I hope right. all that made sense. I was trying to be concise, but that's uh definitely long and short. Well a of it couple of me. things that thank you, Ellie, it's 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 just such a a powerful um story and there's there's so much here that both you and Kate are are talking about it. Both of you mentioned ego, and Kate referenced the program that we did on that topic. So if anybody out there is sitting there saying, what are they talking about with ego? Because these women Mm -hmm. don't sound like they have big egos in the sort of classical sense of being arrogant. That's not what we're talking about. It's it's that thinking that, Ellie, you're sort of describing that that the ego is kind of a great negotiator, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm, like, exactly. oh, let, come on, let's take the comfortable route. Or, you know, mm-hmm. you're too busy. Your kids are more important than this or, you know, whatever. This, You and Kate are both describing it very well. And so if anybody's wondering what that's about, I, I recommend that, that episode. Um, and, Catherine, if and I could just interject one last thing, too, please. on that topic. One of the things that I learned um, when I was in treatment, because I also associated ego with arrogance, and I'm, I'm definitely not an arrogant person, but I am definitely a self-centered person, and I resisted that label for a long time because I would constantly put myself at the bottom of the pile. You know, how could I, how could I have an ego when I would sacrifice so much for my kids or sacrifice mm. so much for my husband or my family and um i you know the the way my my counselor put it was sort of like the arrogance of being the best or the arrogance of being the worst any, any every time i'm filtering the things that happen in my life and around me through me that's ego and so mm-hmm. the antidote to that being okay you need to take care of yourself first that sounded egotistical to me like what do you mean put myself right. first that's ego and in fact it's the most loving thing i can do for the people who love me so that's 
I don't know if that clears anything up, but it was a startling yeah, revelation that. to me that, you know, you you don't get to be the best and you don't get to be the worst because all of that is ego. All of it is. Yeah, no, I I love that. And um, that that's definitely me down to the ground as well. And, I, Ellie, I wanted to ask you a specific question, too, because this part of your story has helped me um, quite a bit. In the past, you know, you talked about that obsession coming back, and, and we know that when we take the drink, the, the mental obsession and the physical craving, you know, comes back. And, boy, when you said that, I, I could almost feel it, you know, like come back to me. Like my, you know, my obsession, my beast is still in there saying, yeah, that that even when Kate mentioned Pinot Grigio, that, that little thing in my head popped up like, that's a good idea. You know, me too. I, I, I felt that too. <laughs> Pink. I'm like, You're doing a program about recovery right now. We'll think about that later. <laughs> File that one away. Yeah. But, um, but you mentioned your physical addiction, and just could you touch on that for a second because you've you've described it before, and it was something that I did not experience, but that's one of my yets that I know mm-hmm. that i was I was probably pretty close to a physical addiction. Can you maybe touch on that a little for our listeners who aren't familiar i will i will and i i um i've one of the things I've described is I know that I had an emotional addiction to alcohol for years. And probably from the first time I ever took a drink, which was I loved how it got me out of myself. I can this is me, not a not from a clinical or, you know, I'm not a physician, I'm not a licensed alcohol and addiction counselor or anything, but I recognize that love affair with alcohol. Um, and how it changed me in ways like I always drank to feel that different version of me that I loved a little bit more than the real version of me, the one that felt a little more confident, a little more relaxed. That, to me, is an Mm -hmm. emotional addiction. Um, And I think anybody who's ever flirted with addiction or with alcohol understands that feeling because I'm married to somebody who is an absolute normal drinker, and, and when I describe that feeling to him, he has no idea what I'm talking about. Um, so it's that change me, change me, change me feeling. Like I just want to feel like somebody else. That's an emotional addiction. When I crossed into physical addiction the first time, it started with things like, um, oh, definitely the obsessive thinking. You know, okay, is it 3 o'clock yet? Is it okay to have a drink at 3 o'clock? Like even when I wasn't drinking, I was thinking, okay, here's me not drinking. I'm not drinking yet. Look at me. It's 5 o'clock and I haven't had a drink yet. Now when is it okay to have a drink? And how many drinks can I have without anybody noticing? That's the beginning of an obsessive train of thought. And without, you know, not knowing it when it was happening to me real time, that was the the tip of the iceberg of physical addiction. And I crossed from the, you know, constant obsessive thinking into physical addiction in a matter of weeks. It was about two or three weeks when I found myself waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I was feeling really twitchy and a little bit sweaty and panicky thoughts and racing thoughts and a feeling of impending doom. And I went downstairs to get a glass of milk. That's what I told myself. And I had a drink instead at 2 o'clock in the morning. And And instantly all of those awful feelings, that existential itchiness and that anxiety and that, you know, fast breathing and a little bit of a shaky feeling in my muscles immediately went away. And instead of saying, wow, that's probably a really bad sign that I'm drinking at 2 o'clock in the morning and it's making me feel better, I thought, wow, okay, I just need to make sure that I can, I need to remember this. I need to remember that if I drink, these awful feelings go away, these physical feelings go away. And it was only a matter of a week or two before I was drinking in the morning and then drinking every few hours. And when I didn't, I would start to shake and sweat 
and um, you know, it didn't it didn't feel at all like a hangover. It felt like an emotional breakdown, combined with like physical shaking and 110% obsessive thinking about alcohol, pretty much all the time, even when I wasn't drinking, especially when I wasn't drinking. So that when I relapsed right. and the alcohol hit my system, the obsession was the it showed up literally instantaneously. My brain started going, I remember that. Okay, now how you know how are you going to do this? How are you going to get more? I mean, you can't you can't keep drinking vanilla extract. So where are you going to go? How are you going to it was everything that was important to me was shoved completely aside and all my brain could think about was my next drink. And so I said to myself, well, you know, I recognize that obsession. I'm not going to cater to it, but in the middle of the night, I'm waking up and my hands are shaking and I'm sweating and I'm having all the physical symptoms of it, which are so uncomfortable, it's almost impossible to resist the only antidote that my body knows works, which is to get more alcohol. And it doesn't always happen that quickly, but it picked up not only where I had left off, but worse. It picked up as though I had been drinking for those six years. That's how fast it came back. And that scared me a lot. I want to jump in on what you're saying there, um, Ellie, because I've worked really hard to help people understand, people that don't struggle with this, that when uh, it's not fun, right? And I think there's, there's an idea out there for people that when people relapse, it's because they got bored of not having fun and they decided, oh, it's time to have some fun again. And an idea that, you know, life in recovery is boring and a relapse is, you know, I just flipped into the party for a minute and had a woo girl moment and flipped back out again. And, and you know, what you're describing is not fun. Mm-mm. At that point, you're not drinking to have fun anymore. It's, it was stopped being about mm-hmm. fun a long time ago, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's that our brains are programmed to believe we need this to survive the same way we need oxygen and water and food. I mean, it's Absolutely. a it's a life and death um, compulsion. Mm-hmm. It's and like, it's a biological. I know that you've talked about this before on the show, but it's a biological fact that the addiction lives in our amygdala, which is the same, in our brain, the same place that those survival instincts reside: food, water, shelter. Which is why our hygiene goes. Uh, well, for me. You know, my hygiene would get worse. I wouldn't take care of myself. I wouldn't eat very much. I would just drink water so I wouldn't get dehydrated. I mean, it it literally falls into the same file cabinet as the things that I need to survive. And that's exactly what it felt like. And I am utterly and completely powerless against that once the alcohol is in my system. And then the next yeah, so logical is- argument that people make is that if you know all that, why would you drink? And my answer to that in, in my particular case is I drank because I got away from all of the things. If you take those 11 stages and you put them in reverse, I got away from all of those stop gaps that are between me and a drink. And without those, I was powerless to control my brain saying, that's what you need. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any community. I didn't have any faith. I didn't have, I was overextended. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I mean, I, I let everything else fall by the wayside thinking that I was doing the right thing for other people, and it's and I lost sight of myself. So I so wasn't I want to enough talk of a reason about to those, stop me. I, I do want to talk about those stop gaps, but I'll just I'll mention here too that if anybody's listening and you're you're feeling some of those physical symptoms, it's really important to consult with your doctor um, because detoxing on your own, if you are physically addicted to alcohol, um, is very very dangerous. So um, just something to note there but you know so 
all these stop gaps then let's let's talk about what that is and and you've already touched on a number of them both you and Kate um Allie but one that I wanted to touch on was the idea of telling family and friends so you know sometimes we can feel like oh maybe there's this temptation to get some sober time on our own you know and then I'll tell people like okay wait a second wait a second let me just back this up or let me just keep going I I can stop anytime again or you know kind of what that can feel like and and Kate you mentioned quite a bit about having your husband for accountability and you alerted your family of origin um what was that like then once you kind of really surrendered to recovery how did you bring them back into that conversation oh I was um, really forced to. I mean, I, I honestly, a few times I had wished, you know, that I had never had that conversation initially about accountability because it was so much easier to just fall back out, obviously, when you don't have anyone that's paying attention to what you're doing. But, um, I mean, it wasn't an easy conversation, especially with my husband because I, you know, I know to this day he still doesn't, trust me 100% because who could blame him? But it's just, you know, being honest and sitting down and trying to explain to him what's going through my head and also, you know, telling him, you know, these are the steps that I'm taking, this is what I'm doing differently. Um, Explaining to him, you know, when I'm going to a meeting, why I'm going to a meeting afterwards, trying to just reiterate to him, you know, I feel so much better, you know. It's been just be honest with my feelings, which is so hard for me to do. Communication is mm-hmm. definitely not my favorite thing. I like to try to handle everything on my own, but it's just... <laughs> I mean, he's here for a reason, and I want to keep him around for a reason. And in order to do that, you know, I just have to be honest and open and learn to communicate. And my family... um when I did end up relapsing, I didn't really give them any of the details. Um, I I knew I couldn't drink around them, so I, you know, I did it when no one was around. And my husband, obviously, he caught on because he would he came home and he <laughs> he could tell that I had been drinking. But my family, they never witnessed it, so I I never really brought him back into the conversation. And that was just pure, um, you know, shame on my part. Uh, but I, they probably figured it out. I mean, just. You just look and feel so much better when you're not drinking. They probably figured it out. But we never actually had the conversation about my relapse um, or what I'm really doing in recovery or why it's necessary to go to meetings or have a community. I haven't had that conversation with them, and I I really should because it, it would make things a lot easier. It would help them to understand and potentially help some of them who, them who may have ultimately a problem. So. Right. This is, I'm curious from both Kate and Allie, for other people around you, what were the things that were said that were helpful versus the things that were meant to be helpful that weren't? It's hard to know what to say. I think people are to be supportive lest they seem like they're approving of it, but it's important to be supportive. So can either of you remember like specific things that were said or done that were really helpful? 
Um, this is Ellie, and I, I, I sort of have a two-part answer because I, I want to backtrack just for a second on Catherine's question, too. I think it's a really important question to ask, this, this whole discussion around family members and what's helpful and, and, and getting back into the fold. Um, there are some very, very unique challenges with coming back from a relapse. And for me, it felt like the first time I got sober, I was a sick person trying to get well. But coming back from a relapse, I felt like a bad person trying to get good. Like I should have known better. There's so many other layers of shame that settle on top of my recovery um, as a result of relapsing. And the frustration level from family members and friends and the frustration level I had in myself was about a thousand times stronger than it was the first time I got sober because I could always, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And logically, I did know better. And um, when I had great sobriety, I couldn't imagine relapsing. I really didn't understand people who relapsed because, you know, how how could you take a drink when you know what will do to your life? And um, so I think that one of the lessons that I learned in coming back from the first relapse I had was I there are people in my family and who are close friends and even, you know, my, my husband to a large degree, they don't understand and they can't. And I kept trying to come to them and get them to understand and, and needing them to try to uh, try to make them understand. And, um, you know, they're still angry. I, I, I would argue that I haven't brought them back into the fold because they, they're so confused and so mistrustful and so hurt that I had to abandon the idea that they that I can expect that from them. And I turned to the people in recovery or found new people in recovery who could help me get back up on my feet and, you know, love me until I could love myself. I had to go to different places than I had ever gone before for that kind of support. And understanding that the proof is in the pudding for the people who are not alcoholic and not in recovery in my family um, and live my amends to them and, and prove to myself first, you know, become the sober woman that I am meant to be and then allow them to heal and, you know, and get help on their own terms. Um, and also to, um, you know, I, I this didn't happen so much this time around, but, try, you know, I was trying to get everybody to go to Al-Anon and everybody to get their own counseling and everybody needs to get help. And, and I was really kind of stepping over onto their side of the street and trying to tell them how they were supposed to feel and tell them what they need to do. I had to I had to completely step away from that kind of, you know, invasive caretaking role and allow them to feel however they feel, but also set up a boundary to say, I'm trying to get well and I'm trying to come back from a relapse and I know that you're angry and I know that you're hurt. You need to take that somewhere else for now. You can't come to me and ask for explanations from me that I know you're not going to believe anyway because we don't have trust. And that's a really hard boundary, at least it was for me to establish, because I had hurt these people and I had behaved mm-hmm. in ways that confused them. And then to say, but you know what, I need to take time for myself and take care of myself. We're going to have to have this conversation when there's some time and distance between what's transpired and, and you know who it, what it is that I'm trying to do here. Um, and so it's, there's not a whole lot of active animosity, but I've, I've had to put up some really strong boundaries um, that are painful and they're hard. And to the answer to the question about what's supportive and what's not, um, I, I, this is such a tough thing because I, I know that threats don't work. You know, I, I have some people say to me, you know, you drink again and this is going to happen. That That's not going to keep anybody sober. 
and it's not going to motivate anybody to stay sober. But I also know that if the people around me do what they need to do to keep themselves safe and to keep themselves, you know, happy, as, as happy as they can, um, which may be telling me that I have to leave the house. It might be saying, you know what, I love you, but I need some distance from you. It might be you can't be around your children unsupervised. It might whatever the, whatever the people around the active alcoholic or the relapsing alcoholic need to do to keep their own worlds as stable and safe as possible. Basically, they can only control the things that are that have to do with them. Don't try to control the addict or alcoholic because you can't, but you can certainly set up boundaries and conditions um, that, you know, by you can love an alcoholic to death. You know, you could be trying to do the right thing and say, oh, I love you and I know you're trying and let me give you money or a place to stay. Or a lot of the times my life was saved by people saying, you know what, you have nothing left. You go take care of yourself and we're going to be over here living our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that as angry as it made me and as resentful as it made me, that ended up saving my life. It did. Wow. It's painful. It's very, 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 very painful process. But having been on the other side of the equation, when I'm desperate, you know, the first time I got sober especially, if I could have found one more person to accept me and take me in and take care of me as I was as an active alcoholic, that's where I would have gone. It wasn't until I had nothing left that I got help. And I had very I have very advanced alcoholism and so you know it's maybe different things will work at different stages of this but when somebody's really struggling and um you know you the family members feel like they're tearing their hair out it it's probably time for them to walk away. So how do we move then you know this shame stuff that that comes up you know how do we move from you know that notion that I'm a bad person trying to get good because we're still sick people trying to get well, right? right? Irrespective of how many relapses or how progressed it is. I mean, we, we, I, I think one thing when we're talking about community on this show, you know, something that can be hard to believe, at least it was for me, um, coming into recovery meetings and, and, communities both in real life and online was like are these people for real like I I really wanted to keep up a a wall and I I didn't want to let people in um I was I've said this before that I was really committed to what I've an old timer in my home group calls um the two biggest lies I'm okay and everything's fine and Mm -hmm. but the thing is is that in community we really have this unconditional acceptance and understanding that we are sick people trying to get well, not bad people trying to get good. But how do we, what can we do to to move into a more, um, a place of more compassion for ourselves? Do you, you mean like within the recovery community itself or within the relapsing no, like, person? Yeah, I mean, if struggling the person re- speak, yeah, speaking now to the, the person who has relapsed. Mm-hmm. One of one of the things, and this has, this ties back to our friend Ego again, that helped me um, was taking myself out of the equation and thinking, how do I feel when somebody has the courage to come to me or the courage to walk back into a recovery meeting or the courage to post on an online group or, you know, to, to open up to me as a friend um, to say, I'm struggling, I've relapsed, I'm drinking again, I'm terrified, I don't know, I can't stop, I don't know what I'm going to do, what pops into my head 
is not judgment. I think, wow, that takes guts. And mm-hmm. I love you, and I'm here to help you. If you're willing to help yourself, I am willing to help you. What can we do to get you better? Never for a moment do I see somebody come in to a recovery meeting who had years of sobriety even and raise their hand and say, I've relapsed. I, I've never once thought, what a coward, or how could he or she? And mm-hmm. how arrogant is it of me to think somehow that I'm so special, that I'm the worst relapser out there, that I'm the worst alcoholic out there? You know, what kind of, how how um, self-absorbed do I have to be to not let people love me? And when I can think about my relapse in the terms of how I view other people, I have more compassion for myself. And I I also embrace my journey as being just that. It's a journey. And every single thing that has happened to me along the way, every relapse, every, you know, milestone, every triumph, every everything, if I remain open and teachable and willing to grow and ask myself the hard questions and um, get out of my own way, then then I'm growing and it's all it's all leading to me to be the kind of person that I'm meant to be. So I, I basically I chastise myself for being selfish enough to think that I'm that important, you know, that I'm somehow different if I relapse than anybody else. And um I don't look at other I don't think other people should have shame. I hear Kate tell her story so bravely and I think she's amazing. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't I apply that same kind of, you know, I can Find one person that I trust. One, just start somewhere and open up um, and let people in and let people help me along because Kate said it perfectly. I cannot do it by myself. If I'm doing it by myself, Mm -hmm. then I am living in shame. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we are unbelievably, as it always seems, just over our hour. So I'm thinking that as we wrap up, first of all, um, Kate and Ellie, and just I'm so grateful that you're both here, and thank you so much for your service and your honesty. Um, There's a lot to think about here. And so I just thought maybe we can go around the group. Amanda, starting with you, what's one thing that you've learned tonight that you're going to take away and put in your recovery toolkit oh i've learned so much tonight um and just a couple little things that i jotted down that that were from earlier on um one thing kate brought up is um the feeling of you know um you know you know when when she was you know struggling about i deserve a drink and how that's you know changing that conversation in your head to um, I deserve to be sober is is you know kind of like a that's a turning point for people that's just one you know one thing that I just jotted down early on that i just that's just so important and um I know one thing that I've learned from Ellie that um really helped me a lot is um the the hole in my soul that will never be filled um there are certain things that are broken in us that we can work on and acknowledge and alcohol used to be something that um that would fill that that hole and having you know that's one thing like having some acceptance like I can do better in this area 
but I can't be perfect. That's just it just those are just I guess both of those things to me are just two tools to stay on track. Um but it just um I mean, the the I, I admire both Kate and Ellie so much and their courage to come back and you know the things that you have done is it, it's it's just it's it's amazing and and seeing having seen both of you on your journeys and you know how you know coming back you've changed things and doing things different and um, I just I really admire you both it's it's. Um, it's great to have you both as friends, and it's great to have, you know, it's it's really important to, it's just everything that was said on here, I'm, I've really just been, like, listening and kind of in awe, like, of, of what you guys have done and what has changed, and it's it's such, so important and such great in, information um, to, for everyone out there. And, you know, one thing I learned, you know, Two is the importance of community. We talk about it, it. It comes up, like Catherine said, it comes up every show, and it's just it's so important. Because I remember at the time, um, Ellie, when you had your first relapse, we were, were both very extremely active in advocacy work, like um, constant. And I was kind of running myself thin, and I know I took a, you know, I still am involved with recovery advocacy, but I took a step back and said, you know what, I have to live my life too. So you can obsess, you can mistake, even if you're doing a good thing, whatever it is, it could be, you know, going to church and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you know, you're running the choir, you know, you're you're doing the coffee in the morning or, you know, whatever, if whatever that you're, that is consuming too much of your time if you're not putting your recovery first you're putting yourself in danger so even if you're doing something mm-hmm. that seems like it's so good um you know that it, that is good and it's a wonderful thing you still no matter what you do in life you have to have balance and respect yourself and i heard that loud and clear from both kate and ellie of where you have both learned to respect yourself and that's something you know i struggle with sometimes and but i i i've I'm, you know, I constantly work on that. Um, I think that was a really, you know, really important. Yeah, thank you, Amanda. Jean, how about you? I learned so much. Um, I really want to thank you both for being here and being so open and honest. Um, A couple things I jotted down that I'll be taking away with me tonight. Um, One is um, that um, being proud of your humility is the same as ego. (laughs) And um, also something I heard earlier this week that really, it stayed with me because it didn't quite make sense to me, but after tonight, now it really does. And that's the idea that our willpower isn't our main line of defense or our first line of defense. It's the last line of defense. Mm. And the primary defenses are the situations we put ourselves in and the people we surround ourselves with and the environment that we create and the conditions that we allow. And then in all of that, the last line of defense is willpower. So by the time our willpower lets us down, a whole other row of dominoes has toppled. And um, that's really the takeaway that I, I'll be um, taking with me tonight. So thank you. Thank you. I love that. Thanks, Jean. Um, Ellie, how about you? Closing thoughts. Oh, my goodness. Um, I think that my... I guess my closing thoughts have more to do with people out there who have relapsed and who might be listening and um, who 
have that feeling of hopelessness or desperation or maybe it's just not going to work for me or, you know, if you're listening to this show or even if you've never relapsed, I mean, anybody who's a part of our audience is, is obviously wondering about something, um, is that, you know, it is absolutely never too late and sometimes the most simple, obvious change, you know, or maybe it's not a simple change, but that, that start with one thing. You know, I would get so overwhelmed and I would think to myself, I've got to, you know, I've got all these things going on, all these big things I have to change, and oh my gosh, I'm a failure, and I'm this. I'm such an extreme thinker. Start with one thing. I love how Kate mentioned yoga. Do one thing for yourself, or open up to one person, and you know, sometimes like a seed change like that can actually lead to some really, really amazing things. Um, but that it's, you know, I, I really thought at the end of my last relapse that this is just maybe I'm just like the worst alcoholic that ever lived. I mean, and and understand that that's how my disease talks to me and that you know we're we nobody has to live like that and and uh asking for help is is not only, it's the hardest thing to do but it is just the first step of lots of amazing amazing things to come because i the things that have come out of all of this pain and all these hardships the things that i'm learning about myself and the way that i'm coming into my own is a it, those there it's gifts beyond measure it's hard to explain um, but the only way out is through. <laughs> so, right, right. you know, don't, don't lose hope. Stand tall and, and love yourself enough to, uh, you know, reach out and grab somebody's hand because there's lots of hands out there waiting to be grabbed. Definitely. And Kate, closing comments. Um, I just want to focus and back in on the shame and just tell everyone to let it go. Um, you know, I was thinking earlier tonight when I was, trying to prepare some notes about what I would say tonight. You know, I, I thought to myself, geez, I really wish I just took, like, the direct route to sobriety, that I hadn't had all these relapses, that it didn't take me, you know, six months to string together, you know, two weeks. It didn't take me a year to get, you know, months of time. And, you know, here I'm looking at my, you know, working on my first full year of sobriety, which didn't take three years for me to do that. But you know what? I've learned so much over the past two and a half years, and I'm in such a better place, even with all the bad experiences. I have, you know, such a great group of friends that I never would have had um, had I not, you know, started this journey. So just let go of the shame. It doesn't accomplish anything, you know. And like Ellie said, <laughs> you know, everyone within the community will welcome, you know, welcome you back with open arms. And if they do judge, then you know what? That's not someone that you want as your friend anyway. So just keep an open mind and just right. be honest. Forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Absolutely. And so although the definition of addiction is that it is a chronic disease marked by relapse, that doesn't have to be a self-fulfilling prophecy or an admission of total defeat. And I was thinking as Ellie and Kate were talking, I remembered the acronym HOW. And that helps me. That's honesty, openness, and willingness. And that can get us into recovery, and it can help keep us sober. So if you have relapsed, take heart. Um, reach out a hand. There's there's lots of us willing to help you. Um, thank you, Kate and Ellie, for your honesty, openness, and willingness to be here tonight. You've really helped me, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. And Thanks as always, to all of you. Like to, yes, yeah, thank, thank you. you. We'd like to direct our listeners to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. 
And there you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and Jean's recovery blog, Unpickled. If you'd like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, that is thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly from the website, or you can follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. We thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you have a great evening. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Good night, all. Good night.